Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, everyone, to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting, and I'm happy to have with me today one of our go-to experts on everything human resources for both training and legislative updates, Kathy Rafino, Vice President and Human Resources Consultant and Trainer with Train Me Today. Welcome, Kathy, and thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Dorothy, and thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Well, there's a lot going on right now. Companies are worried about the economy, the great resignation of employees, and of course, all of the legislative changes that are coming up, particularly here in California, because you know our governor loves to do that to us. Uh, Let's start with the legislative changes. I know our governor recently signed a lot of new bills into law, so let's figure out what they're all about, shall we? First, let's talk about something that's going on related to COVID legislation. AB 152 extends COVID supplemental paid sick leave to December 31st, 2022. Does it not? Can you update us? on that? Yeah, so we were hoping, fingers crossed, that it would not get extended another time, but sadly, on the 11th hour, the governor did sign the extension, but it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be. So he's just simply extended the employer's obligation to provide the supplemental paid sick leave under COVID um, until December 31st of this year. It was going to expire on September 30th, and so it got extended to the end of the year. However, it did not extend more hours. So the original hours that the employees were entitled to, which was up to 40 hours, and the key is up to. Employees will think that it means they get 40. It's only up to 40 hours um, if they themselves you know, contracted COVID. Um, or tested positive, you know, then they would get up to 40 hours. If they have someone in their family who is then also exposed and they are that person's caregiver, then they might be entitled to an additional up to 40 hours. So it's not 80 hours that they automatically get. He did not add more time. So this time went back all the way to January. So if they've already used their time, they are not going to have additional time. Does that sound right? Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> so. that's, that sounds good. So basically what you're saying is the original the original time period has not changed. If they've already used it, then it's gone. But if they haven't right. used it they, or, or only used a portion of it, they can use it up to the, the same maximum as before. They just have more time to use it. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and the employer still has the right to require their employees to submit to a test on or after the fifth day of initially testing positive. Now, if the employer is asking them to do that, to submit to another test, then it's going to be at the employer's expense. So they will have to pay for that. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. What about AB 257, the FAST Act? I understand that this requires the creation of a council to review and establish standards on wages, conditions, and so forth. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, so the FAST, the FAST um, Act is kind of an interesting one. It, it has two main goals. One was to ensure that employees who are working in the fast food industry that they're getting paid a livable wage. I know everyone's rolling their eyes going, what does that mean? <laughs> well, we're, we'll find out. Um, the second goal was to guarantee or is to guarantee a safe working environment for these workers. 
So it's not something that we didn't expect. Through through the last couple of years, we've heard a lot of conversation around, you know, I can't make a living wage, I can't make a living wage. So what's going to happen under the Fast Recovery Act is that a council is going to be established um, and they will have certain authority, um, which will include determining what that livable wage is, um, you know, so we don't know yet, but they will also be able to look at hours of work, working conditions, um, how do they, you know, provide a, an avenue for employees to report if there's something going on. And this law will also protect employees similar to the Whistleblowing Act. So if they report or disclose information of unsafe working conditions um, or lengthy hours and so on, then they will be protected um, from any retaliation from their employer if they do report. Um, it also defines this weird space where we have a lot of these fast food industries that are franchises. So one of the things it did do for the people who are the franchisors, they are not going to be liable for the franchisees violations. So that was kind of a, a, a plus, I guess, for the individual uh, franchisors because they can't be everywhere with these franchisees. So they don't control everything. Um, and this kind of gave them a, a little bit of an out. Okay, so basically they're creating a new bureaucracy, correct? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to boil it down for people like me that just so, – okay. Um, yeah, so, that, so it really doesn't – there's no standards or anything within it right now then. It's just the bureaucracy to create the process to be able to do this in the future then. Yeah, I mean right now it's uh, – you know, the workers are still subject to regular, mm -hmm. you know, wage and hour laws. I mean they still have to make minimum wage. They still get overtime after eight hours or 40 hours in a week. So those laws have always applied to them. But, you know, if you've ever worked in the fast food industry or you have kids who have, it can be a pretty abusive work environment. Um, it's just, you know, it is what it is. And so now they're just trying to put this council in place that says, look – you know, we can't just have this going. I truthfully, Dorothy, I believe that a lot of this happened because a lot of adults went back to work in the fast food industry because that is the work they could find. Yeah, and that's the sad part of all of it. Yeah, sometimes you have to take what you can get. I remember when I left Michigan uh, back in the 80s, a uh, long time ago, uh, everybody was graduating from college and their, the economy was so bad there uh, that the college workers, you know, these brand new college graduates were trying to get jobs and they were competing mm -hmm. with, with people that were, you know, auto company executives for entry level positions because the auto industry had just tanked. And mm -hmm. uh, I remember just looking and saying, oh my gosh, how can I compete against these people that have 20, 30 years experience on something? You know, yes, they were way below their standards, you know, but they needed a job and they were going to give it to them first, probably because they had experience and we didn't as college graduates. So yeah, yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> yeah. It's, similar idea, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what drove this change, I believe. Okay. Well, thank you. What about uh, AB 1041 that expands current family leave under CIFRA to include a designated person? Can you explain, you know, to our listeners what this means and explain it to me? Yeah, the, the designated person one. That, that's a, um, yeah. <laughs> so what this basically means is um, Sefer has just added, we've just added one more covered person, if you will, um, to the list of things that people can take time off for. So under Sefer, we usually have, you know, spouse, 
uh, domestic partner, child, parent, you know, these things. So now under AB 1040, what they're going to say is you can designate as an employee one person to your list as a, or, or a person to your list as a designated person who may be covered for purposes of when you would take leave. So, you know, all the other things under SEFRA still apply. 12 months of employment, 1,250 hours, all of that still applies. Um, it only applies to employers with five or more employees. So none of that changed. The designated person, though, interestingly enough, does not need to be related by blood or what they call affinity. So that's the in-law thing. It doesn't need to be that person. Um, the employers still have the ability to limit the employee to one designated person per 12-month period. So that is completely up to the employer. If you want to let them have six designated people, you can, but why would you? Um, and they may now also use their sick time, just like they can for a family member, for this designated person. Okay. So, yeah. So if they don't have any family members, they could pick their best friend or they could pick anybody they want. Uh, good to know. Thank you. So SB 1044 is related to retaliation in emergency situations. And I understand it prohibits employers from taking certain adverse or retaliatory actions. Can you walk us through this? Yeah, this, this had to do with when people, when an employee feels unsafe. And this is really about when we have things like natural disasters or criminal acts. So, you know, fires, the fires when, you know, people were being told by emergency personnel, hey, you should get out. But employers would say, you know, it's too far away from us. We're not going to worry about it. This now addresses that and says, listen, if the employee feels that it is not safe to be there, if they have a reasonable belief, and that is key, that there is a reasonable belief that the workplace is unsafe, then they can leave. Um, the condition under emergency is defined as that it's a condition of disaster or extreme peril to the safety of the person or property at the workplace. Or it can be in order to evacuate the workplace, worksite, or their home if they're working from home. And here's a, new, here's a different one too, or at the school of the worker's child. So if the you know parent is at work and there's a, a situation going on at the child's school, God forbid, um, then they are safe to leave. It's unlawful under this new law for employers to prevent their employees from using their mobile devices at work when they think that there is an emergency going on. Okay. Wow. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. So it covers the schools also. I mean, I actually think that's a good idea, especially with everything, as you said, there's, yeah. there's, there's been a lot of things going on with school shootings and school everything. Right. So something like that would be covered under this then, correct? Yes. And, you know, and it's understandable, like you said, with everything that's been going on, it's probably not surprising to most of us that this law was signed. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. So how about AB 1601? This is related to employment protections to employees and call centers when an employer is considering things like mass layoffs and so forth. What's this all about? I know this is this one's kind of confusing to people, including myself. Well, and I think, you know, if you read through the law, we can all kind of glean what this is about. It's about saving jobs here and not letting employers just push jobs off to other countries where, you know, the cost of labor is less expensive. And so what it's basically saying is if you have a call center, um, that the call center employer is required to comply with 
with the WARN Act, the WARN notice. When there is a mass layoff, certain notifications have to go out to employees saying, hey, you're going to lose your job. And this applies to either a mass layoff or they're re relocating or they're moving their call center to a foreign country. And it's very specifically stated, which is really kind of interesting that they called them out on that. Um, they have to report their actions to the Employment Development Department, otherwise known as unemployment for most of us. You know, we refer to them as that. But they have to report their actions, what they're going to be doing to EDD. And here's the kicker. EDD is going to publish a list of those employers and their location notices. So if you say we're moving to, you know, Taiwan, then it's going to be notified to your customer base at least. Um, but definitely to the public that you're going to be relocating all of those jobs to that location. So um, there are penalties if they fail to report, and that includes a five-year exclusion for claiming any tax credits, receiving state grants, or state-guaranteed loans. So it's a big hit. That that is a big hit. Um, I'm actually, but I'm actually. This is one that I'm actually kind of happy that they're doing because, as you said, I mean, I'm I'm kind of tired of dealing with people on the telephone from the, you know they change their their call centers over to whatever country and you can't understand a word they're saying. You're trying to communicate with them and get a problem solved and you just can't. So maybe it's just as a consumer, I think this is a good thing. Yeah. As from the employer side of the, you know, from the employer side of this, I don't know. But from the employee side, again, it's trying to protect them. But again, as a as a consumer who deals with call centers, you know, when you call in for anything, having an issue, I can't stand it when I'm talking to somebody that I can't understand a word they're saying. I just, that just drives me crazy. Yeah. So anyway. Well, you know, the hope is that, I mean, maybe if this happens that people will think twice. I I think the hardest thing for most of us with call centers is they have a script that they read and that's all that they read and they cannot assist you any further. Um, and I find that if they're actual human beings in the area where they're servicing their customers, they have a lot more flexibility to address situations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I, yeah, I'm one of those people, as I said, I'm the consumers, one of the consumers that hates that kind of thing, because <laughs> you're right, you go off script, you say, well, what about this? And they just freeze, they don't have a thing to say, because maybe they don't know enough English to even understand what you're saying. I don't know, because you know what I mean? They're so scripted that yeah. they can't even. Have, so anyway, so I, I know it's kind of off on a tangent, but um, <laughs> I actually I actually kind of like this one. So anyway, that's, you know, I'm sh the, em the employer part of me, you know, the business side of me probably wouldn't like it as much. But as a consumer, I, I kind of do. So anyway, that's just my personal opinion. Um, but I'm never allowed to have my personal opinion on this podcast, right? <laughs> but anyway, so let's talk about the next one, AB 1751. It extends COVID uh, workers comp. Can you update us on that? And how long is it extended to? So this one's not too terrible. Um, we've actually all been dealing with this already. All this is really doing is it's saying that, um, you know, first of all, this, they're extending it to January 1 of 2024. So we've got a whole nother year of this. Um, and all it really has to do with is the presumption, what they call the rebuttal presumption. And this is saying that if there's a somebody who gets COVID, it is presumed that they got it at work. And employers have been having to provide these notices and information about COVID-19 cases to their comp, you know, their workers' comp claims administrators. And this is just saying you're going to have to continue to do that for another year. So not to, not anything we're not used to. We've been doing this. They haven't added anything else to it, thank God. 
um, it's just extending the, the requirement. Okay, thank you. That's straightforward that enough. Yeah, yeah that, that one's pretty easy. That one's easy enough, yeah. So next, let's go to AB 1949, which adds bereavement leave as a protected leave of absence. You're laughing. Uh, can, you, can you tell us who this applies to, the effective date, and what's included in this new law? And tell us why you're chuckling about this one. So, because I can hear everybody going, ugh, California. So hang on to your hats, people, because the federal government's looking at this and have been looking at this for years. Um, California has been looking at this for just as many years and kind of dithering back and forth, should we, shouldn't we impose more leave? But the federal government's also looking at it. So um, I think what probably pushed it into legislation and into signing was COVID. We had a lot of people who had reason to be on bereavement. And I think it just, you know, put the light on it. Um, what this means for us, it affects people, uh, employers with five or more employees. So if you have five or more employees, you are going to have to comply with this because it aligns with CIFRA. So CIFRA is, you know, five or more employees, so they're aligning it with that. What it means is they get five days of bereavement upon the death of a qualifying family member. So the qualifying family members are the same as we see under CIFRA. It's spouse, domestic partner, child, parent, sibling, grandparent, grandchild, or parent-in-law as defined by CIFRA. That means their current parent-in-law is not the last 10 they've had. So <laughs> if they've had several marriages and they have several in-laws, that's not who counts. It's the current. Yeah, and I think the biggest part of this is that the five or more, that's a big hit for a small employer. So I can definitely see why, particularly the small employers would be rolling their eyes. But um... Yeah, it is a big hit. Um, but they have to comply with CIFRA too, and right. that's 12 weeks. Right. So, you know, I mean. But you're right. There will be people that just say, <laughs> California, I know. Like, yeah. add, one, add, more, add one more leave to us. Come on, yeah. keep them coming, keep them coming. Yeah. I know. <laughs> the employee does have to be there at least 30 days prior to taking their leave. So if they've only been there 29 days and one minute, they do not qualify for this leave. Oh, good to know. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and it can be taken for each qualifying event. So that's probably the hard part because if you have three or four people who have passed away in your family, that's three or four times you're taking that 15 to 20 days each time. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of time. But you're right. There definitely have been situations where this is definitely needed, obviously, since COVID. People did lose a lot yeah. of people in their families and so forth. I mean, I, I understand it, but it doesn't make it easier for employers. Uh, that's for sure. Now, the one thing people do need to remember is that this can be taken just like Seifert in intermittently so they do not have to take all five days consecutively but they do have to complete that five days within a three-month period of the person's death so it's it's going to be wonky to to kind of manage through that you're going to have a lot of tracking employers are going to have to track this or they may end up giving too much time I like I like the wonky term. <laughs> it's going to be wonky. Okay, My HR technical language. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that. I love that. <laughs> well, I guess we're all seeing that COVID's not quite over yet. Of course, AB twenty six ninety three extends the COVID notice. Can you tell us how long uh, and what the employers need to do regarding this one? Yeah. So this one again, um, it just is required. These notices are the notices that we've been required to be given giving out to individual employees, you know, so when we have a group that's get ex gotten exposed to COVID, we have to notify them that, hey, you may have been exposed or you have been exposed. 
And so we've had to give those individual notices. This is just saying you're going to continue to give notices until January of 2024. So extending it out one more year. The nice part about this one, there is a nice part. Hang on, everyone. <laughs> Instead of having to give those notices individually to every employee, we can now just post it. So just a big workplace poster for 15 days rather than giving those individual notices out, which is kind of nice. Um, it makes it a little easier. Okay. I like the poster idea. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, my personal opinion, and, and you know, it's just from being in HR all these years, my personal opinion is put it on the poster and then probably less chance that somebody's going to read an individual notice and go, oh, wait, I need to claim this versus just a poster saying, oh, hmm, there's a poster. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, let's talk about SB 523, which makes it illegal to discriminate against applicants and or employees based on their reproductive health decision making. Can you walk us through this? And my personal question to you, is this perhaps in response to the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health SCOTUS case? Absolutely. And the governor's made no secret about that. There, He's been signing a flurry of things that are, you know, there to protect women's rights when it comes to reproductive health. This is just another one. Um, really simple. It's just simply telling employers that look your health plans you're going to have to cover some some over-the-counter birth control methods so there's some things that are going to have to be covered like condoms um, you know any kind of contraceptives that you can just you know go into the drugstore and pick up those things will most likely be covered within reason um, it removes the cost sharing piece of that. For the over-the-counter items, the employee would not have to have a cost-sharing piece, so the, the insurance can't charge that. So basically, insurance would cover it 100%. It does prohibit employers from discriminating against employees based on that employee's reproductive health decisions. So that will, that ties in with some other laws that have said basically it's not government's business what we do with our bodies. Male or female, it's just, you know, they just all need to stay out of our business. <laughs> so. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. What about SB 1162? It places new requirements on employers to provide certain pay information in their job ads or applicants. Can you tell us what this is all about and what size employers does this affect? So this is the one that most employers are rolling their eyes about because, and they shouldn't be, because pay equity has been a conversation for many, 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 many years. This is not something new and it's not just California. Um, this goes all the way back to federal pay equity. So what this is really saying is um, employers were supposed to be complying with providing their pay scales when applicants and employees asked for it. Apparently we weren't doing that. So now they've tightened up the rules and said, listen, if you're an employer with 15 or more employees and you're going to post your job, you know, ad out there, you need to provide the pay scale on that posting. So you can no longer hide what you're paying. Um, and this is really about just saying if we're going to pay, you know, 20 to $25 an hour for this job, it's irrelevant who applies for that job. That is what the job pays. So it's really trying to keep people honest about what they're going to pay and prevent employers from saying, well, you know, they're a man, they get more money. They're, 
you know, the breadwinner, which I can tell you in my 25 years in HR, I'm tired of hearing that. Um, especially when we're in an environment in a society now where we have a lot of single parents who are female, they are the head of household and we need to stop thinking in terms of gender or minorities or any of these other discriminatory thoughts about we're paying for the person who has the skills, knowledge and abilities to perform the job, period. Yeah. All the other things don't matter. If you've got the, the knowledge, skills, and abilities to perform that job, then you are a qualified candidate. That's what you get paid. It does not reduce the employer's ability to say, listen, I'm going to hire this person. I'm paying them a little more. So the scale may be 20 to $25. I may pay this person starting off at 22 because they've got more experience. So if you can legally... Um, defend your position, then great, you can do those things. But if you have consistent records showing that you are always paying one gender more than the other, that's going to be a problem. Um, it does require that employers provide additional reporting information to the state. And this goes along with when we file our, our EEO1s with you know race, ethnicity, how many employees, male, female. So this is the same report. Now it's just going to require more data on your pay structure. And the other thing it added is current employees, if they ask, you have to give them the pay scale for their position as soon as they request it. So that's, that has not been really pushed before, but now if an employee goes in and says, you know, I want to see what the pay scale is for my job, we have to provide it. Well, thank you for that. Um, really, all of the legislative updates, I appreciate it. I'd like to change gears a bit now and ask you about a few other situations, you know, the current environment in HR. The first is the Dobbs versus Jackson's Women Health SCOTUS case, which we just talked about a moment ago. So I'd like to ask you, because I've been doing, you know, a lot of articles on this, a lot of podcasts on this and so forth. And, and I just think it's quite interesting and I wanted to get your take on it. As an HR consultant, what are you seeing? What are you being asked about, you know, related to the abortion issue? Are there confusions from employers? Are they asking questions, you know, about what they can and cannot do? Are they asking questions about liability or travel benefits? What are you seeing and what are you hearing at this point? You know, it's a mixed bag. Um, it depends on the employer you know, and what their thoughts are. Obviously, larger employers have more financial capacity to address this situation in, a, in different ways than a smaller business does. Um, the travel thing has not come up as much yet, but that also could be because the employees are not disclosing to the employer why they are traveling. They could just be saying, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> You know, I mean, they don't have to tell us where they're going. But from the HR community, what we're mostly hearing from people is nobody really wants to talk about it. A lot of our clients, they don't see this as an issue. They don't want to be that involved in their employee's personal life. They don't want to be the person having that kind of knowledge and making that kind of decision for an employee. So it's kind of an interesting thing. These legislators make it sound so much different than what the rest of us really are doing. Um, and you know, Dorothy, you've seen the, the statistics. Most Americans are like, yeah, we don't want government in our personal health decisions. We, you don't belong there. Um, you know, even some of these elections that have been going on, I think people were quite surprised in 
you know, seeing some of these conservative states where they thought that this would be supported and women came out in droves and said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> so I think that that's a really good benchmark for how most employers feel. They just don't want to be involved. Um, you've all seen, you know, a lot of the employers, the bigger ones are saying, we will pay for this. We will include this in our benefits or we will somehow do this. I think it's going to be an interesting battle to see how it really all plays out. Um, for HR, you know, we are Switzerland. We are not going to disclose because of HIPAA certain people's health information. And I think that's going to be a battle that's going to be fought because how do you as an employer make a decision on this without getting medical information that you have no right to? It's going to get messy. Yeah, it's going to get messy for sure. And no one wants to be the test cases in the courts for sure. See what's going on. <laughs> no one wants to be in the headlines. Right, 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 right. Well, so thank you for your opinion on that. I appreciate it. Yeah, like I said, I've been uh, spending a lot of time on this for the last few months since this case was announced. Uh, and uh, people, yeah, people are all over the board, depending also what state you're in um, and so forth. Obviously, if you're from Texas, you're going to have certain opinions. If you're in Kansas, obviously, they showed in the polls what their opinions were. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting situation and you you're right we do have to wait and see how it plays out because this is probably going to go on for years and years until you know yeah. anything is settled on this and yeah it's, it's uh it's quite a quite a conversation in in a lot of places but uh, thank and you for it's it's interesting that you brought up texas because one of one of my uh really interesting clients they are based in texas and we had a short conversation about this when it passed and she's like I don't know why this is such a big deal. There is no one in this state that I know that supports this. And I'm like, oh, that's surprising. <laughs> that is surprising. And I, and I joked and I said, well, your governor does. And she goes, well, him. <laughs> <laughs> well, they certainly are doing a lot of things to prevent people from, you know, going to other states and doing all kinds yeah. of other things. They're certainly battling with the employers that are trying to do something to help people. So anyway, we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, yep. It's going to be interesting. So let's let's uh, change gears a little bit. Um, since COVID, we've seen a number of employees simply not going back to work or retiring early. Or for those that are seeking employment, you know, they're they're able to now be much more selective when they're looking for work. What are you seeing now regarding the great resignation, as they're calling it? Uh, is it as bad as it was during the peak of COVID? Obviously, obviously during the peak of COVID, but let's say more 2021-ish. Are more people going back to work now? What are your thoughts on this? So it's interesting. Um, as you know, I, I teach a lot of the HR certification classes and a lot of my students are recruiters. So we have these conversations all the time. And it's very interesting because during COVID, I think a lot of people who worked in industries where they were not able to work remote, so, you know, manufacturing or, or such, you know, you, you can't do that at home. I think they just kind of assessed their life during that time and thought, you know what, I don't need to work. I would rather spend my time with my family and they've just figured out a way to make it work. So I think those people can be included in that, you know, retiring early. They, they haven't really retired, but they've just chosen to spend their time with their family while they're young or, or you know, whatever the case may be versus going back to work for their, you know, 15 hour and and you know, fifteen dollar an hour job, and I think that that's fine. Um, we are seeing it; it's becoming a little easier for the recruiters. Um, probably a year ago, <laughs> all the recruiters were telling me, "Oh, this is the worst job ever right now because they could not get anyone." And what they were seeing at that time was people applying for the job, 
and then never showing up for the interview. Now they're seeing people actually show up, which is a great thing. The challenge I think right now is people want to work remote. They got a taste of it and they liked it. And so now that is tied into, are we really seeing people resigning? Or are we just seeing, as you said, people being really choosy now? And I think it's a combination. I think some people have decided not to go back to work. I think some people have decided if I do go back to work, it's going to be on my terms, meaning they want to either have a hybrid, you know, work from home most of the time and go in the office a couple of times a week, maybe. Um, and some people are just saying, I don't want to be in the industry I was in before. So that industry is suffering. You know, we've seen that in some manufacturing and, you know, hospitality jobs. The one industry I will say is struggling a lot is hospitality because there's not no nice way to say this. Um, humans are being really mean to other humans in that industry. They're taking out their frustration on these 17 year old kids who are serving their food. And, and it's really hard to get people to apply for jobs in that industry right now. Yeah. So yeah. that's where I see the biggest hit. Yeah. Well, it, it, all service industries, it's, you know, I see, you see it yeah. in hotels, you see it in airports, you see it in airlines, um, you see it in restaurants, you see it any anything like that. And it is tough. They've got a ton of openings. Uh, it's amazing. Nobody wants to be screamed at. <laughs> yeah. I, go figure, right? Go figure. I, I know. You know. I can't blame them. Uh, well, let's talk about those employers that are struggling to find employees to fill multiple jobs. Let's say they have 10, 20, 30, 100 <laughs> open jobs. What have you seen and can you perhaps make recommendations to them regarding the best ways to attract and retain their workers? What kind of wage increases realistically above and beyond minimum wage issues are you typically seeing now compared to say 2019 to 2020? How much more can employers expect to have to pay employees compared to pre-pandemic? You know, are you seeing 10% more, 20% more? What are your thoughts on this? You know, I think employers need to be realistic about this. It's not a surprise when you have hourly employees that that's most likely where they're struggling to fill those positions because it's been a complaint for years that people feel that they are not being paid enough for the work they do. And I think it's in the best interest of the employer to take a look at what that really means. Take the time and invest the money and get information from a compensation specialist to assess where things are at this time, they can get it down to your zip code and tell you this is what your competitors are paying. Now they're not going to tell you who your competitors are, but they're going to say this is who your competitor, th these are the wages that they're paying for the same job you're looking at and make sure you're in alignment because we do know that employees are going to one employer and saying, oh, you'll pay me you know, $22 an hour and then they go down the street for the other interview and they'll pay them $22.50. Is it petty? Yes. So how do you fight that? You need to fight it with other things you can give. If you can't give money, you ha there's other things employees value. What are the benefits and how much are they paying? That was going to be my next question. What about the benefit packages? Are you seeing applicants comparing not only the wages? It sounds like that's exactly what you're saying, mm -hmm. but also benefit packages offered by employers, you know, when they're job searching. I mean, I'm hearing of massive spreadsheeting going on where applicants, yeah. you know, they literally have a huge spreadsheet and they're comparing all the positives and negatives for every single job opportunity. And they're just mm -hmm. going down a checklist and saying this employer offers this, this one offers it. And the one with the most checks is the one that they say, okay, I'll accept the job. I mean, so what do employers 
you know, need to consider doing in order to become or remain competitive when they're trying to attract or retain employees? I think it comes down to the things that we already know we all should be doing. You have to pay a fair wage for the job that they are doing. So, it, you know, really think about what is the amount of work this person is doing? What kind of knowledge and skills are you looking for? You know, if you're looking for somebody with a college degree, then you need to pay accordingly. You can't pay them the $15 you're paying for the high school kid. It's not going to wash. They're going to go somewhere else. But it also sends a message to people that if you are underpaying, then you are not valuing your employees. People want to be valued. That's like the number one thing we hear from employees. I left my company because they didn't value me. They didn't care that I was there. They didn't acknowledge my work. So there's more than just the money and benefits, although those are important. And like you said, they do check the boxes and compare things. So if your benefits package, you know, if they're having to pay for themselves, you know, $100 a week um, deduction out of their paycheck for their benefits, and they're making, you know, $30 an hour, that's great. Until they go to the next company that says, look, we'll pay you $28 an hour, but your benefits are free. When I do the math, that's the better job. Financially, I come out ahead in that job, even though it's $2 less. But keep in mind that employee is also going to go back to that employer and say, well, my other co- the other company offered me 30 You think they're not going to take it and say, we'll give you 30 Of course they will. And that's what employees are doing. They're coming, the job applicants are going to one company and saying, the company down the street just offered me this. Can you match it? Yes, we can. So now, not only am I getting the same amount of money, but I'm getting better benefits, at least cost-wise. So, so you're basically saying that these that these you know employees that are out there looking, these job seekers, I mean, they're just getting better at negotiating their positions. They've gotten much better at negotiating their positions, and you know, I mean, they're they've gotten much better at at being their own advocate for getting what they feel they deserve in the workplace. You know, employees. Typically, when you hire somebody, they actually do want to do a good job. They really are not coming to your company with the intention of just messing things up for you. Nobody gets up in the morning. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. There might be some. (laughs) But most people don't get up in the morning and say, hmm, as I'm blow drying my hair, how can I really screw things up at work today? They just don't do that. They really do intend to go to work and do a good job but they expect the same in return. They expect that acknowledgement that they did a good job. They expect to be you know, treated with respect in the workplace. They expect certain things that we all you know, do expect from each other. And I think that that's what COVID showed us is that people decided, you know what, when I'm working from home, I'm peaceful, I'm getting a lot done. I don't have to deal with the anxiety of you know, people fighting or people arguing or people trying to take sides on things. I don't have any harassment or discrimination issues. I'm in my own little bubble. And they liked it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that has to be taken into consideration, especially if you are an employer who needs your people to be on site. You know, maybe think about things, you know, other perks that don't cost you money in the same way as a a salary or benefits and say, you know what, we work a four-day work week. Or... We do hybrid. You can one day a week, you can work from home or, or two days a week, whatever the case may be, and really think about it. But whatever you do, do not change the essential functions of the job. The job is the job. If they really cannot do it from home, then they cannot. Right, right. 
Well, that's, I think that's good information. Thank you and good insight. Mm-hmm. So are you seeing employers struggling to keep up with the cost impacts on their bottom lines? I mean, it seems to be much more expensive now to bring on employees and keeping them is a lot harder as well from what I'm seeing. Uh, you know, they seem to jump, as we talked about, employees seem to jump mm-hmm. from job to job whenever someone offers them a little more, as we talked about, higher benefits, more money, whatever it is. What are you seeing now and how do you see them dealing with this? Um, you know, it's funny, you know, you remember Dorothy back in the day, we all thought, oh, only tech people do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jump from job to job. And we expected that every two to three years. Oh, look, they had a new job. It, I think it's just a lot of things that are happening. Um, there is an adage that HR has always had that we say, you know, people don't leave companies, they leave their supervisors. And it's still true today. So when you get that employee, as you, you know, everyone knows, it's so hard to recruit and get somebody who's going to be a quality employee. This is why you hire them because you believe that this person is qualified to do the job. They're going to be a great fit in addition to your company. Why would you want to risk losing them by not doing anything to keep them there? So that retention piece is huge. And that is the part that I've seen more change in companies and heard more creative things happening. You know, people are doing more town halls to keep their employees you know, educated on what the company's goals are and what they're doing. They're trying to do more leadership and growth and development programs for everybody at every level to kind of keep them engaged. If people feel that they are a part of the organization, truly a part of the organization, they know what the, what the game plan is, they know how they fit, they will stay. Yeah. More likely they will stay. Yeah. Now, is money always going to be an issue? Of course, it is for all of us. Let's be real about that. We all think about the pay. <laughs> so We have to, especially with the economy today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, and the economy, we've all been through this, you know, these economic upheavals before. This is not the first time. And every time in my lifetime, I can remember, oh, it's the end of the world. We're never going to get out of this. <laughs> oh, no. Gloom and doom. And we, we gloom and doom, and we do. Um is it you know hurting the bottom line? Um, you know, I think as consumers, it depends on the industry, of course. If it's a product, a service, I think yes, some of us are feeling that pinch. Um, you know, it, and I understand that companies have to do what they have to do. I will say, personal opinion: if you're providing me amazing service, I will happily pay for it. But don't charge me more if your service still stinks. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> well, I hear you. you know. Well, thanks for all of your great information and your insights and so forth. I really do appreciate it. I'd like to end with one final question. You've kind of already answered it, but I want to kind of expand on it a little bit because I think you brought up a great point. Given all that we've talked about, everything that's going on, what are the best to-do items that you'd advise employers, you know, in the current market relating to getting through this great resignation and plowing forward into 2023 and beyond? Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, employers really need to take a serious look at how they're structured. Can you or can you not truly support some remote work? If you can, I think it's something critical that you need to be looking at because that is what people are looking for. Um, I think that you know, if you're concerned about are you aligned with, with the compensation that's going on with your competitors, hire a really good comp and benefits person or compensation specialist that does this for a living all day long. Can your HR people do this? Yes. 
Can they do it as well as a specialist? No, because those people have all this information at their fingertips. It takes them two minutes to do what it would take us a month to do. So I would invest in that if that is a concern. You know, get with your benefits person, you know, um, someone like you, Dorothy, who can tell them, look, here's some options. You know, here's some things that might make things work better. Um, look at those as far as, you know, do we have some alternative ways we can do things? Maybe think about offering some supplemental benefits that they currently are not offering. Well, I wasn't cost the company yeah. anything. But I, the I would, yeah, for that. exactly. I would definitely recommend that for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just kidding. I mean, but, but no, seriously, voluntary benefits, things like that. We, I just, just did a podcast on voluntary benefits as well and, yeah. and asking the same kind of questions. And, and yeah, those kind of things mean a lot. I mean, people mm -hmm. want more for, and, and sometimes you can offer it. And like you said, employers don't always have to pay for it. There are a lot yeah. of things you can do to make employees happy. And I always say, how about just doing a survey? How about just asking your employees what mm -hmm. they like? And, and I think a lot of employers would be surprised at the responses that they get, because I think people kind of get stuck in their ways. We've always done it this way. Right. And, and, and the, the employees have always loved it. Well, maybe that was five years ago or 10 years ago. The world has changed. Yes. So, yes. So maybe. At the and and you're right. It. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the things that we think people would not be interested in, they would be surprised. People really are interested in them. And, you know, finally, I think that take a look at, you know, with your internal HR people, if you don't have one, connect with somebody who is in HR and talk to them about what are some things that you can do that engage people. That's how you retain them. If they're engaged, they stay. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Well, I really appreciate all of your time today. If anybody should want to reach out to you, how would they do that? They can contact me at um, either my personal email is Kathy at trainmetoday.com or they can reach me at 949-308-7152. Well, Kathy, thanks so much for being with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Yeah, we love having you on. You know that. Thanks again, and to everybody else out there, please stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to stay tuned for the next episode of the Benefits Executive Roundtable Podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3 toll-free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.